Dear Father, we are thankful for the life of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for his ministry on earth. We're thankful that he came to offer the kingdom to Israel and that he will come again to offer it to the last century of Israel. We are thankful for the gift of his broken body and his shed blood, for the covering and the erasure of our sins. We are thankful that we have this to look back on and that we can base our faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's get into the material this evening. This is the last Passover that Jesus will celebrate on this earth before the kingdom. And as I said before the class, he celebrates it a day early. This is uh, not well known, but we'll see why that had to be um, as we open up the text this evening. But first, we deal with Jesus' preparations for his own death. This is the Passover on which Jesus will die, the Passover which he will be the Passover lamb. And he predicts this immediately. This is still on Tuesday, right after he finishes giving his great discourse on the coming of the kingdom in Matthew 25. While they're still on the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells them he is going to die. He tells them that he is going to be killed. Once again, they don't quite get it. But I, we are also told that on the same day, another meeting is taking place in Jerusalem. It's taking place at the private court of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he's assembled the Sanhedrin, and they have organized a plot to kill Jesus. They need three things for this plot to work. They need a charge to bring against him under Roman law. They no longer have the right to execute their own prisoners. They will hold a civil law for him in Israel, and then they will hold a civil law for him under Roman law as well. We'll look at that next week. They would also need a witness to accuse him of this crime in front of a Roman court, and they would need a secret place and time to arrest him. You see, it is the Passover, and all of the Jews from inside the land and outside the land have come to celebrate the Passover. This would be a very crowded time of year, and Jesus has stirred up a lot of excitement ever since he performed the first sign of Jonah. Ever since he resurrected Lazarus, people have been generally positive towards Jesus. Many were coming to faith. Right now, at this time, he's a popular figure. And this is really what is souring the leadership of Israel against him to the point where they want to kill him. Those who don't care so much about Jesus in the land would still be upset with the Sanhedrin and the leadership of Israel uh, collaborating with the Romans in order to have a prisoner executed. So either way, if they don't do this just right, they have a riot on their hands and they want to avoid that at all costs. And so they begin to seek someone who can accuse Jesus of a crime, who can stand witness before the Romans and who can show them where and when to arrest Jesus. It's also on this night when they return from the Mount of Olives back to Bethsaida, which is what he did every night that week. 
that they entered into a different house, not Mary and Martha's house, but the house of Simon the leper. Now this is interesting because lepers were not allowed to own houses. So how did Simon the leper get a house? He had to be a healed leper. This was only possible in the first century when Jesus Christ was healing lepers in the land. When we read this, we kind of take it for granted, but this in and of itself was a miracle. Jesus sat at the table with Simon the leper and with Lazarus, whom he had resurrected. We have on that Tuesday night a snapshot of the kingdom where the resurrection and the healing of the Jewish nation will have taken place. We also get something else that we've seen before. We have Martha serving Jesus at the table while Mary exercises a different kind of service. Mary takes a very expensive bottle of nard, a precious ointment that was usually reserved for a woman's wedding night, and she breaks, uh, she breaks the ointment and pours it on Jesus' head and on his feet, and she wipes him with her hair. Now this nard costs 300 denarii, the text tells us, which is about 300 days' wage. This is almost a whole year's salary, so we could think of it as perhaps about $30,000. Could you imagine having a bottle of perfume costing $30,000, let alone pouring it on someone and wiping it with your hair? Well, the disciples were astounded at this, especially Judas, But once again, Mary properly assessed the situation and recognized this was no ordinary person reclining at the table and this was no ordinary week. Mary, because she had sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him a few weeks earlier, while Martha was in the kitchen serving Jesus physically, Mary was serving him spiritually, she heard what Jesus had to teach and Jesus had to teach about his death. Mary understood And so she anointed him for his death. This got Judas very upset. On its face and to the disciples, it looked like Judas was upset because of a waste. Because Judas was the holder of the money box, they thought perhaps Judas was upset that she didn't sell that in order to give money to the poor. This was days before the Passover, and one of the Passover traditions was to give money to the poor, and so this was kind of a reasonable assumption by the other disciples of why Judas would be upset. However, John tells us Judas was actually upset because as the holder of the money box, he made it a habit to pilfer from the money. He was a thief, and he wanted some of that ointment for himself. He wanted the money for it, 300 days wage. And this hardens Judah's heart. His love for money sends him to the leadership of Israel, and he offers to betray Jesus. What they offer him is 300 shekels, 300 pieces, or sorry, 30 shekels, 30 pieces of silver worth less than one day's wage, but that's not nearly the worst of it. 30 shekels was the price for a dead slave. In Exodus 21, part of the law, when a slave was gored by an animal, 
the master of the slave was to be paid 30 shekels. This took on a very negative connotation. In fact, paying someone 30 shekels was worse than paying them zero shekels because it meant your work is worthless, utterly worthless. It's worth as much as a dead slave. This becomes even more important when we get to Zechariah 11. And Zechariah is told to take on a Messiah, uh, take on the imagery of the Messiah, to act as a good shepherd in Jerusalem. And then after he tended the sheep that were due for slaughter, he was to go to the leadership of Israel and ask them what his work was worth. They could have told him it's worth nothing, go away. But instead, out of their contempt for Zechariah, they gave him 30 pieces of shekel or 30 pieces of silver to tell him that his work was worthless to them, utterly worthless and contemptible. But when God assesses that situation with Zechariah, he says that is the price that they value me at, the price of a dead slave. And so this price was given to Judas for him to betray Jesus, to turn Jesus over to the authorities so that they could have him killed. Now he was given this money by the high priests and the high priests would have paid him from the temple treasury, which was also used to pay for the Passover sacrifices. So in essence, the high priests purchased the final Passover sacrifice from Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Two days later, on Thursday, which was Nisan 13, in the evening it would become Nisan 14, the day of Passover. In the morning or in the afternoon, Jesus began the preparations for Passover, a day early. He tells John and Peter to go make preparations for the Passover. They have a problem because the Passover lambs are not sacrificed until midday on the 14th. They have two options available to them. They can offer a sin offering at the temple and use the lamb from the sin offering or else they go without. Since this was the day before the Passover, I believe they went without because there is also evidence in the text that they expected to celebrate Passover the next day. They may not have been fully aware that what they were doing was celebrating the Passover. When Judas is dismissed from the 12, the disciples assume that he is going to purchase preparations for the Passover dinner while they are eating the Passover dinner. And in fact, while they are almost finished the Passover dinner. If you ever celebrate a Passover dinner, you don't really start before all the preparations are made because there is a set series uh, or there is a set order in which you take the Passover Seder. In fact, that is the meaning of Seder is order. You can't take it out of order because it all has significance and it all has meaning. They may not have been upset by the absence of a lamb on the table because they didn't expect this to be their Passover dinner. But what they didn't understand was their Passover lamb that year was not to be a lamb, but was to be the lamb of God. The Passover lamb was at the dinner that evening. 
during the Passover, there are four different cups of wine that are drunk. Two are drunk before the meal and two after. The first, oh shoot, I can't remember the name. The first uh, is drunk right at the beginning before they even wash their hands. This is the cup of blessing. With this cup comes the prayer when they thank God for his sovereignty and his provision of the Passover wine. The Passover wine was a special sort of wine. It couldn't have any extra preservatives in it or anything that caused fermentation. It had to be fermented naturally. In other words, it had to be pure wine, unblemished by anything, just as the blood of Christ had to be pure blood, unblemished by anything. After they took this first cup, it was customary to have a ceremonial hand washing in which either the hostess or a servant would take a cloth and take a basin of water, pour the water over the guest's hands and wipe it with a cloth. This was reserved for servants and hostesses because this was a lowly position. This put this person below all of the other guests. And so this is the second place, or actually the third place, where Jesus deviates from the regular service of Passover. Here, instead of washing their hands, he washes their feet. Peter doesn't like this. The rest of the disciples seem to accept this without complaint, but Peter says, is one such as you going to wash the feet of one such as me? Interestingly, he calls him Lord, saying this, recognizing his sovereignty, but doubting Jesus' actions. Jesus tells him, you don't yet understand, but you will. And Peter says, never. You are never going to wash my feet. He calls him Lord, and then he tells him what he's going to do and what he's not going to do. Peter's got a lot of learning to do, and we'll see him learn in just a few days here. But Jesus says, if, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter says, all right, Lord, then wash my head and my hands and my feet. And he says, no, if you've had a bath, you don't need another bath. You just need cleansing. Now, this has to do with our sanctification, and our salvation. If you are perfectly washed clean, you never need that perfect washing clean again. There is no second salvation. Once you are saved, you are eternally secure. But being that we still live in the world, and we still have a sin nature, our feet get dirty by the world, and by that sin nature. And so, on occasion, we need our feet washed. Now, this was particularly a humiliating position for Jesus. Not only was the washing of the hands for the lowest servant, but washing feet was for the lowest of the lowest. In fact, some would even say that it is even beneath a servant. And this is the kind of humiliation that Jesus went through in order to provide his blood, which is good for our salvation, 
and for our restoration. 1 John 1, 9 through 2, 2 tells us as much that the same blood which cleanses us of our sins for eternal salvation also cleanses us of our sins that keep us out of fellowship. Both required the humiliation of Jesus because both were provided in the same blood sacrifice. This is perhaps what Paul has in mind when he says, just because grace abounds does not mean that sin should abound all the more. He says that's ridiculous, that's insanity. Sin doesn't become less egregious for a believer than it does for an unbeliever. In fact, there's an argument that it is more egregious. It takes the same humiliation of Christ to wash our sins today as it did to provide us with our salvation. And so we ought to walk in accordance with that salvation and with that cleansing. We be careful where we walk because Jesus needs to wash our feet. But while he is saying this, he says, if you're already clean, you don't need to be cleansed in your whole body, just those parts that are dirty. But then he says that not all of them are clean. Not all of them have put their faith in the Messiah. One of them at the table is not a believer. One of them does need a whole bath. A foot washing would not do it, and that is Judas. And so at this point, he begins to hint towards a betrayer. In fact, you could even say Jesus isn't very good at hinting because he just plainly says, one of you is going to betray me. But they don't get it. They don't understand. Sometimes it's amazing that they don't understand. But they had no comprehension whatsoever that one of them is going to betray Jesus. They ask him who it will be. He doesn't tell them directly who it will be, but he hints. And he says, the one who dips his hand in the same bowl as me is the one who will betray me. Now this happens during the stage called carpus of the Passover, where they take a green vegetable and dip it in salt water. The green vegetable signifies Israel in its youth, and the salt water signifies passing through the Red Sea. It's a symbol of remembrance to remember how God brought them out of Egypt. Each person dips his own vegetable, and so there are multiple bowls of salt water set out on the table. So someone close to Jesus, physically, would be the one to betray him. The bowl usually served three to four people. We know that John is on Jesus' right. Judas may have been on his left. So Judas and John, at least, also dipped their hand into the same bowl as Jesus. After this came the breaking of the matzah. In this, there are three matzah, or three loaves of bread, that are placed into a cloth that has three compartments. Interestingly enough, there is no agreement in uh, Jewish tradition for why there are three compartments. There are guesses, but these guesses seem to have come after the fact. None of them were reasons for the development of this, 
but some try to explain it later. For us, we understand that the three loaves of bread signify the Trinity, especially since it is the middle matzah, the middle loaf of bread, that is taken out at this stage in the Passover and broken in two. The smaller half is consumed while the larger half is wrapped up and hidden. For the Jews, the smaller half signified their redemption from Egypt. This was their smaller redemption. Their greater redemption was coming with the kingdom. It was hidden from them for the time being, but it was anticipated. What they did not understand yet at this Passover was that this signified the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who had come in flesh, and that his body would be broken for them. And in his body, they would have the greater redemption. It was through that second half of the matzah, through the greater redemption, that they would need to enter into the kingdom. That greater redemption came through Jesus. The specifications for the matzah bread was very detailed. It had to be unleavened bread. It had to be striped, which means it had to be burned. And it had to be pierced so that when you held it up to a light, you could see light through it. The Jewish explanation of this was that the burning and the piercing impeded the process of leavening. There was supposed to be no leaven at all in the bread. But for us, we recognize the significance of this with the suffering Messiah. His body had to be unleavened, completely without sin. Leaven was a symbol of sin. It would be bruised. It would be striped. And it would be pierced. When Jesus broke this bread, he told the disciples that this was his body, broken for them. The smaller portion of this matzah was consumed in the stage called sop at the Passover. The bread was taken and it was dipped into what is called the kereset. This is a mixture of apples, nuts, cinnamon, honey, lemon, and wine mixed together and let brown. They dip the matzah together with the lamb and the, and the vegetable into this coruscant, and then they dip it in a bitter herb, often horseradish, and they eat that. This represents the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. The brown of the coruscant is supposed to represent the bricks and the mortar that they were forced to make and to build in Egypt, and the bitterness of their persecution in the land. Now notice on this plate, this is a uh, modern uh, sop in which they have an egg on the plate. There would not have been an egg on the plate in Jesus' day because this signifies their mourning that there is no temple today. So 
this plate is probably accurate except for the egg. But at this point, Jesus tells them once again that he is going to be betrayed. Peter, who is not sitting close enough to Jesus to ask him himself, gestures to John and has John ask Jesus who it would be. We know that Peter is not sitting on Jesus' left. John, who is sitting on his right and leaning left onto the chest of Jesus, is close enough to ask Jesus who it is. They all want to know who it is. And they all want to know whether it is them. Oh, you know, I forgot to say that. The last time they asked, they all asked individually. And Jesus replied only to Judas and told Judas, you have said it, which is an idiom for yes, indeed. The other disciples didn't seem to hear this, which would also indicate that Judas was close enough to Jesus for Jesus to say this to Judas without the others hearing. Now, when John asks who it is, Jesus says, the one to whom he gives this sop is the one who would betray him. Jesus dips the sop and he hands it to Judas. Judas, at this point, is probably shaking in his boots. He had agreed to betray Jesus, but the high priests wanted to avoid the Passover. It's too early. This was a demonic intention to keep Jesus from the cross. Many times throughout Jesus' ministry, Satan tried to have him killed. Of all the days, to have Jesus killed the other 360 days of the year on the Jewish calendar. Satan would love to have Jesus dead. But on this day, and this one day in particular, Satan does not want Jesus dead. But Jesus forces Judas' hand. It has to be today because the betrayer has been found out. And now, Jesus threatens to expose him to the rest. Jesus' comments are coming far too close for comfort for Judas. And Jesus tells him, get up, go, and do what you must do. Jesus chooses the time of his own death. Jesus, through the will of God, is in control the whole time. Jesus forces the betrayal to occur early because he must die on the Passover. And so Judas leaves the group. Now only the 11 disciples remain. Judas is gone and he doesn't join them again. But now that Judas, the unbeliever, is gone, it's time for the third cup. The second cup, as you'll notice, is not on this list. It didn't pertain to the gospel writer's theme, though they did celebrate the second cup. In the second cup, the cup of plagues, they memorialized the ten plagues that God sent on Egypt to bring them out of the uh, wrath 
of Pharaoh, were out of the grip of Pharaoh, they would pour 10 drops of wine from their cup onto the table while reciting the 10 plagues. This was a celebration of mourning because they did not celebrate even the destruction of their enemies. Now they are at the third cup, and this is the cup of atonement. This is celebrated after the main meal. And Jesus tells them as they are handed this cup that this is his blood shed for their sins and that this is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant that had been promised to Israel in the Old Testament was ratified by the blood of the Messiah. And this new covenant, though we experience blessings from it today, still awaits its full establishment in the kingdom. You can't have the new covenant without the kingdom. Jesus, as the king of the kingdom, mediates the blessings of this new covenant to his body. So it is in operation today, but it is not fulfilled through the church. It is fulfilled through Israel and through Israel's Messiah. And the church has the blessing of experiencing the spillover from these blessings because they are part of the body of the Messiah who died to ratify the new covenant for Israel. Both the breaking of the bread, the middle matzah, and the third cup are carried over into the church. In remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us, it is difficult, if not impossible, to understand the purpose and the intention of communion without understanding the Passover, without understanding what Jesus came to fulfill. This gives us a full and complete understanding of the Messiah and his suffering. We are both to remember what he did and to remember what he is coming back to complete. And this does include the redemption of Israel. We as Christians in the church should look forward to this because it is not until the redemption of Israel that the new covenant will be on the earth in every single person. Notably, Judas is not present for the third cup. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for Judas, but Judas did not take advantage of this. Salvation is free and available to every single person, but it must be received through faith. Judas had no faith. Judas was going to betray Jesus. His heart was hardened. In fact, it said before Judas had departed that he was entered by Satan. There are only two people in all of scripture who are called sons of perdition, who are indwelled by Satan. This is Judas, and this is the false Messiah who will come against Israel. In both cases, Satan decides not to leave it in the hands of people to bring his intended victory against the Messiah. He takes over. He ensures that Judas goes through with the betrayal. 
He also will take over the body of the false Messiah for the second three and a half years of the tribulation to ensure that Israel is destroyed. In both cases, he fails. Now with the betrayer absent from the table, Jesus is going to turn to his other 11 disciples. None of them will betray Jesus the way Judas has, but they will all deny him. They will all scatter. They will all run away because they haven't understood Jesus' program of death and resurrection. After the third cup and before the fourth, there's time for conversation and for fellowship at the Passover table. During this fellowship, once again, as the disciples loved to do, they started debating which one of them is the greatest. Now we might say this is understandable because Jesus handed Judas the sop. This doesn't seem significant to us, perhaps, but to a first century Jew, this was significant. Because although the right side of the host was the placement of honor, where John sat, the first person to receive the sop was to be the guest of honor. Rather than passing it to his right to John, Jesus passed it to his left to Judas. Perhaps the question was, which of these two, John or Judas, is the greatest? Jesus told them not to make their assessments like we do on this earth not to assess kings and judges the way that the earth does, but rather to be glorified by God. Jesus tells the disciples that there will be 12 thrones for them to sit on and that they would rule over Israel, that they would judge Israel in the kingdom. Now there are 12 thrones and only 11 disciples here. For this reason, when we get to Acts 1, the disciples replace the twelfth disciple. They'll elect Matthias to the twelfth position, both to fulfill what Judas should have done had he been a believer in preaching the Messiah in the first century, but also, and perhaps more importantly, to fill the twelfth throne in the kingdom. There are twelve thrones, and twelve thrones will be filled, and Matthias will sit on the 12th. Now they take the fourth cup. This is hinted at, but it is not explicitly told to us that they drank the fourth cup. But they sing Psalms 113 through 118 during the drinking of the fourth cup. And we hear that at the end of this supper, they sang hymns. And so at this time, they would also take the fourth cup, the cup of rejoicing. After this, they are going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Their Passover had been consumed in the walls of Jerusalem, as it was supposed to be. As Jesus' custom was, each night they went from Jerusalem back to Bethsaida. The disciples at this point would probably have suspected nothing out of the ordinary, Besides the fact that they had a nice meal in Jerusalem. On their way back, they continue their conversation of 
greatness. And Jesus tells them all that when he is struck, they will scatter. Quoting a prophecy from Zechariah 13, the good shepherd would be struck and after he was struck, he would come back and he would judge Israel. This good shepherd, when he is struck, his disciples will scatter. And Peter pipes up and says, no way, not me. He says, I will even die for you. Jesus tells him today before the cock crows three times, you will have denied me three times. This means before the sun rises that day, Peter would already deny him three times. Now they're on their way home. They're headed back to Bethsaida, so think the disciples. They're about to go to sleep, and they probably won't wake up until the cock crows three times. Peter's a little confused. Jesus has told them already, though, that he is going away. He's going somewhere where they cannot follow. Peter says he wants to follow. Jesus says you can't, but later you will. Once again, Peter doesn't understand, but in the end he will understand, but not until after the resurrection of Christ. Now in John chapters 14 through 16, actually 14 through 17, there is a long discourse. This is called often the upper room discourse. It actually begins in the upper room, probably during the uh, time for fellowship at the Passover. It continues on their way out of Jerusalem and to the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane. We won't have time to go into much detail about this, but we will do a quick summary. What Jesus told them while they were still in the upper room, he told them that he was going away, that he was going away in order to prepare a place for them, but that he was coming again for them. Now what is written in the upper room discourse, two days after the Olivet Discourse, where the Olivet Discourse was his last message to Israel as a nation, Israel as a whole, this was his first message to the remnant of Israel and to the remnant of Israel alone. This remnant would become the church, but it started in Jerusalem and it started with only Jews and only believing Jews. It would spread out to the Samaritans through the ministry of Philip and Peter, and it would spread out to all the Gentiles through the ministry of Paul and Philip and Peter. Peter, as the head of the church, as the one with the keys to the kingdom, had the responsibility to open this to any people group who would enter. Now this promise to go and prepare a place and to come again is the first time that Jesus reveals the doctrine of the rapture. It's still in its nascent form. It may not have been well understood to the disciples. In fact, it probably wasn't understood at all. Had they read their own Hebrew scriptures, they would understand that Jesus had to come again. But this is not the second coming. This is not what we saw in the Mount of Olives. 
where Jesus promised that he was coming again to judge the world. This coming again was specifically for believers at the end of that age that was about to begin. This would be before the years of tribulation that the world would undergo and that Israel specifically would undergo. It's not until Paul comes around and develops this doctrine even more. This promise that before Jesus returns to judge the world and to bring the kingdom and to establish it for Israel and for the world, before that happened, Jesus would come and take his believers out of the world to spare them for judgment because they are his bride. Jesus promises that while he is gone, they will perform greater works than he did. Now this Greek word megale could mean greater in quality or greater in quantity. It would be a difficult argument to make that anyone could have works of a greater quality than Jesus Christ. This probably speaks of a greater quantity. All the works that they do, they will do through him by the filling of the Spirit. And so the greater works, the more proliferous works that they will do, will outnumber the works of Jesus, who performed these miracles for three years. But they will not outweigh the miracles of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, he will empower them for good works, and those works will be many more in number than he was able to perform in three years. He also promises them that their prayers would be answered. When they pray in accordance with his will, these prayers would be answered. And then he promises something that is distinct to this age, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He promises them that if he goes away, he will send a helper. He will send a comforter. He uses the same word here as John uses elsewhere for Jesus himself, parakletos, a comforter. He says he's going to send another comforter, alos parakletos. Alos is specific in the Greek to another of the very same kind. Just as Jesus is God, he is sending the third person of the Trinity who is also God, and he would indwell the believers and they would be comforted by him in Jesus' physical absence. He also promises the indwelling of the Father and the Son. This happens through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit that we are placed into the body of Christ and that Christ is placed in us. And it is through our fellowship with Christ that we know the Father. This is a fellowship of love, and it puts peace in the heart of the believer, and peace is something we need, because the world is going to try to take that from us. We are to rest and depend on the peace of God. They're also given a few commands in the upper room. They are told not to be troubled, not to be disturbed when Jesus goes away. His comfort for them is going to be that comforter. He says, don't be disturbed that I go away. I have to go away in order to send the comforter. Then he tells them to believe in him and in him alone. There is only one name, and that is Jesus' name that saves. Then he gives to them the content of faith. 
Once again, it's in its nascent form, but this will develop into the content of faith necessary for salvation after the resurrection of Christ, which is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then he gives them a new commandment. John is going to tell us more about this new commandment in his epistle. And it's not wholly new, but it's a different variation of a commandment that has been given already in the law of Moses. The law of Moses told those under the law to love one another as they love themselves. The standard for love was their own love for self. Jesus replaces this with a greater standard of love. In fact, the greatest possible standard of love he says to love one another just as he has loved them, even laying down his life for them. This is to love someone else more than yourself, being willing to sacrifice self for the love of another. They are told to love the Messiah, and they are specifically told how they do this. It's not an emotional experience. It's not an ecstatic experience. It is obedience. When they love the Messiah, obedience naturally flows from that love. This is the demonstration of their fellowship with him. And they are told to rejoice in all things. At that point, they left the upper room and began their journey to Gethsemane. And Jesus continued the same discourse. They're told that they would have a new relationship with Jesus that they would not only be his servants, but they would be his friends. A servant doesn't get to know the whole plan of the master, but a friend does. He is going to give them revelation that they would then teach to the rest of the church. And then they would be the friends of Jesus because they understood his whole plan. He told them also that they had been chosen for good works. Now, this was true specifically of the apostles, and it is true for us. Just as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that we have been chosen for good works, and those good works have been prepared ahead of time for us. This was all the more true for the apostles, whose works had been prepared ahead of time for them, and who had a task ahead of them that would take all of these promises that Jesus was giving them in order to fulfill specifically because they were told they would be hated by the world. The whole world was going to turn against them. This was because they were not part of the world anymore. They had a new birth, a spiritual birth through faith in Christ. They were no longer of the world, meaning no longer born of the world. They were born of the Spirit. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be a witness to Jesus as the Messiah, and that the believers would also be a witness to Jesus as the Messiah. Now these two witnesses happen in conjunction. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This prepares them to receive the truth of the gospel. And believers are to go out and share the gospel. And when the unbelievers who have been convicted by the Holy Spirit hear this gospel, they either reject it or they believe it. Either way, it is a work of the Holy Spirit to prepare them to receive the gospel. He will point towards the Messiah 
These disciples are promised that they will be excommunicated from the synagogues, just as the Pharisees had been doing to those who had received Jesus the Messiah. So it would happen to them that they would not be permitted into the Jewish synagogues anymore. Jesus also promises them that most of their lives would end in martyrdom. In fact, 10 of the 11 here died a martyr's death. Only John lived into his old age and died naturally. Judas, as we'll see next week, died by suicide. Here Jesus tells the disciples of the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit to this world that he would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and that the Holy Spirit would give them, the apostles, revelation. And this revelation they would record and it would become part of the New Testament. He also told them that the Holy Spirit, when it came, would glorify the Messiah. Just as Jesus came and glorified God the Father, and God the Father glorified his Son, so when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will glorify the Messiah. It points to Jesus. If it points to any other spirit, it is not the Holy Spirit. And then he promises the disciples that they will see him again. He promises that when they see him again, he's going to teach them in a different manner. That manner is going to be clear. They will understand him at that time. I hope this was encouraging for Peter, who was probably scratching his head most of the way to the Mount of Olives. This was all new doctrine. This was all brand new. They might not have known what to do with this. If you remember, the only time that Jesus even alludes to the church is when they were in Gentile territory in Caesarea Philippi. Other than that, he only speaks of Israel here. He is teaching them what happens after the resurrection and not in the tribulation period, not at the second coming. This is how they are to live their lives from this point forward until he returns. He said he would teach no longer in dark sayings, meaning he would no longer teach in parables. The teaching would be plain and it would be clear. And for 40 days, he is going to teach them about the kingdom when he comes back after his resurrection. But he does tell them also that they would be scattered and persecuted, but that they would be victorious, that they would overcome the world because he had overcome the world. And indeed, he was going to overcome the world in his resurrection. He gives them a few commands on the way up to the Mount of Olives as well. He tells them to abide in the Messiah. Now this means to remain, to stay with, just as he told them the Holy Spirit was coming to abide, meaning it would come and never leave. So they are told to abide in the Messiah. When you enter into the Messiah through faith, never leave. Never step out of fellowship. As they are abiding in the Messiah, they would bear fruit. Only when they were abiding in the Messiah could they bear fruit. He uses the imagery of a vine. He is the vine and they are the branches. Branches do not produce fruit on their own. Without the vine and the nutrients coming from it, no fruit will be produced on their branches. If they are removed from the vine, they will not produce any fruit. So they are told to then abide in Messiah's love. 
to love one another, to bear witness to the Messiah. And when they prayed, now there was a change. Now when they prayed, they pray in the authority of Jesus' name. And this leads Jesus into his high priestly prayer. As we said last week, he has left his office of prophet with the Olivet Discourse, and he is moving into his office of high priest. This is his first great prayer that is recorded as he prepares to take on this office of priest. And it begins with a prayer of preparation for himself. He prays to God and asks for God to glorify him, and he gives a reason why God should glorify him, so that in his glory God can be glorified. This glory is answered in the resurrection. When Jesus is resurrected, he has a new glory that he has not had before. Jesus also asks for a reestablishment of the glory that he had with the Father from all eternity past. This occurred at the ascension, when he was returned to heaven and when he took his place at the right hand of God. His glory and the fellowship of the Godhead was restored in physical presence. And so he would receive a new glory in order to glorify God all the more. The very purpose of creation and all of scripture is to bring greater glory to God. And no one has brought any greater glory to God than Jesus Christ. In fact, all the glory that will be ascribed to us will be ascribed to us through Jesus Christ. Because as Isaiah says, all of our efforts, all of our good works are filthy rags. Only in Jesus the Messiah are any of our works worth anything. Only when we are resting in him, when we are abiding in the Messiah, will our works be of any value. Jesus then prays for his disciples specifically. He prays that God preserve them. He prays that the unity that they share in the Godhead would also be extended to these apostles. Not that they would become part of the Godhead as gods, but that the love that exists between the Godhead would unite them in love so that they would be forever in fellowship with God and with Jesus, but also so that they would be in fellowship and agreement with one another. This was important for the apostles because they were to go out and preach the word of God, not from scripture, though they would preach from scripture, but they would preach the word of God just as prophets did. They would inscribe the word of God, the new revelation that was being given after the resurrection and ascension. They needed to remain in fellowship because God had a mission for them, a task for them, just as he had for the prophets in the Old Testament. They needed to be faithful and God would have to hold them faithful. Jesus gives reasons for this as well, because these apostles belong to him. And because he's leaving, while he was on the earth, he held them in that unity. Now that he is going away, he is requesting that God hold them in that unity. Jesus requests protection for his disciples also, 
specifically protection from Satan. Satan would have failed by that time to stop Jesus from going to the cross. His wrath would be poured out on the followers of Messiah. But once again, they had a task to complete. Jesus requested that God not take them out of the world because they're needed in the world to complete that task, but rather to protect them from Satan so that they could complete it. And then he prays that God sanctify the apostles, meaning to set them aside, to separate them specifically for his purposes. God answers all these prayers, as we can see in the book of Acts. And then Jesus prays for all believers. He prays for them unity as well. Unity in faith, unity in love, in Christ, and with the Father. And then that he prays that they be glorified with him. That when he is glorified, they be with him so that they can see his glory. And finally, Jesus arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. His prayer is finished. He tells eight disciples to wait at the entrance to the garden. He takes three more. John, Peter, and James into the garden a little ways. He has them sit about a stone's throw away from him while he first kneels down and then falls down praying. This agony that he experiences in Gethsemane is equal, if not greater, than the agony he would experience the next day on the cross. This was the agony in preparation for the experience of the cross. Some of the language in the Gospels expressed to us just how painful this spiritual warfare was for Jesus. They say that he was sore afflicted and pressed even to the point of death. Now this would perhaps be borrowing language that the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives would naturally bring to mind since this was the place where the olives were collected for the oil at the temple and this is where the olives were pressed. Jesus was pressed. So stressed was he in his spirit that it manifested itself spirit or physically and he even began to bleed blood. We might ask why he was so afflicted, why he was in so much pain, why his spirit mourned. And it certainly wasn't for his physical pain that he would endure, but rather for the spiritual pain that he had and will endure. Twice, while he is praying, he gets up to check on the disciples. The three that he had left and told them to pray that they not fall into temptation. When he came back, he found them sleeping. He told them to get up and pray that they not fall into temptation. Once again, they will fall asleep. But most interesting of all, perhaps, is Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays that if it is the will of the Father, that the Father remove 
this cup from him. There are many different theories on what that cup might be. Most of them are impossible theories. The cup is certainly not the cross. Jesus is not praying to avoid the cross because that was his very purpose for coming. He had predicted that he would go to the cross. And so if God removed the cup of the cross from him, Jesus would become a false prophet. He would become a sinner and he would be worthy of death. The point of the cross was that Jesus was not worthy of death, but that he died on our behalf. Jesus was not praying for his physical body. He was not praying for his flesh, but for his human spirit. Because although the physical death of the Messiah had been foretold in the Old Testament and in the New, the separation of his human spirit from God had not been foretold. But Jesus understood that it would happen. And Jesus wanted nothing more than to avoid the pain of having his spirit separated from God's for any amount of time. You see, we are born into our sin natures. We are born spiritually dead. Jesus had never experienced that separation from God. Jesus never knew truly what it felt like to be a man experiencing the full weight of the curse, which was separation from God. But he had to endure this because Jesus was preparing to be the high priest. And the high priest had to suffer in every way that we did so that he could become a sympathetic savior. Hebrews 4.15 tells us we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus experienced every single affliction that we do, even down to separation of his human soul from God. Mind you, his spirit or his divine soul was never separated from God. It could not be separated from itself. But when we look at the events of the cross, we will note at just what time his soul was separated from God. It's a really sad note to end on, but unfortunately at the end of the Gospels, we can't help but have a few sad moments before we have joyous moments. So next week, we look at uh, not the Messiah betrayed, but the Messiah under trial. Read Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 18, which is lessons 165 through 75 in the student manual. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the death of your son. We thank you that he has experienced the same agony that we might not even fully comprehend that we experience every day. We thank you that he can sympathize with our weakness and that he has overcome the world so that when we turn to him, we can also overcome the world through his strength and not by our own. We thank you so much for the events that we are about to study in the Gospels. Though they're hard to read, 
so they're hard to get through, and at times they bring it, us to our knees, as they should. We thank you that it was necessary, and you fulfilled it, because we could not bring ourselves one inch closer to you unless you brought us close to yourself. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.